Hi, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to Rerooted, where we really are inviting you to just kind of dig a little bit deeper into what motivates us, what nourishes us, and all the ways that we can receive that beautiful energy that uh, is kind of in the soil around us that we might otherwise kind of miss. That, of course, includes our relational beings, the people that surround us uh, in some circles. That's Kalyanamita, spiritual friends. In some cases, that, of course, is your significant other, your partner, be you someone who chooses to be married, uh, someone who is with someone, someone who is maybe looking to be with someone, because we're always sort of with someone, right? We're relational beings, we're mammals. To that end, we have the experts on this, and particularly uh, folks who are very well-schooled, well-versed, and well-exampled in their own <laughs> couple's work, uh, Harville and Helen, a.k.a. Harville Hendricks, Ph.D., and Helen McKelly Hunt, Ph.D. They're internationally respected couples therapists, educators, speakers, and New York Times bestselling authors. Together, they've written over 10 books with more than 4 million copies sold, including the Timeless Classic, which I have right here, which just got a new uh, revision. This is not that, but you can get that one. Uh, of course, Getting the Love You Want, a guide for couples. And in addition, Harville's appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show a million times, which is great. And they have had their own relationship issues, as I've alluded to, which they may share a little bit out, as many of us have. And they really created Imago Relationship Therapy to promote the transformation of couples and families by creating a relational culture. I just want to bookmark that. They really want to create a relational culture Yes. We're sort of in this transactional culture now. This is trying maybe a throwback to a relational culture, God forbid, that supports universal equality. And in addition, they've developed resources that help couples, families, and educators strengthen their relationship knowledge and skills and their co-founders of Imago Relationships International. Welcome, Harville and Helen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Francesco. We are happy to be here. <clears throat> yes. Namaste. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so out of anything that I said in the introduction, did anything sort of uh, pique your interest that you might want to mention or talk about, or should we just dive right in? Well, I do have a, a response to, and I'm delighted that you used the phrase that, that what we are currently uh, engaged in and committed to is uh, a movement and activities toward creating a relational culture. And that that, uh, is a, a, a radical uh, shift from the culture we uh, have grown up in in the Western world, at least for the past 200 years, which has been focused on singularity, on the individual, on the isolated person, on the self, without reference to context, without reference to the fact that we do live in a culture and that the culture is not just a container we live in, it permeates our thought and um, feelings. Uh, every interaction we have with our partners in a relationship is unconsciously mediated by the values of the culture. In fact, for many years, we worked with couples with a primary understanding of their psychological and historical issues. And uh, we, then we got interested in cultural value systems and discovered the cultural value system that we thought of as sort of outside of the couple is the problem with couples. That is competition, control, domination, it's all about, all about me, uh, was uh, built on top of the psychological issues around the problems they had in childhood 
than also they brought to their adulthood. So I just wanted to underline that to talk about a relational culture and a relational civilization means to actually change the fabric um, and the atmosphere, the oxygen, cultural oxygen in which we all live. So that many of the problems that we now have as a result of living in an individualistic competitive culture would disappear if we can shift the culture itself in mm. terms of its basic value system. So thanks for the opportunity just to put that out as that's our driver right now. <clears throat> We've been with couples and we still are with couples and we love to work with couples, but we see it in a larger context as a cultural problem that needs to be addressed along with a personal problem that needs to be addressed. That's mm, so that. beautiful, so rich. Helen? Yeah, and I too had a response and I'm thinking, poor Francesca, she's not gonna get to her questions. <laughs> That's okay. But, but um, uh, I too was touched with your mentioning the relational culture and simply said, we really do think that the transformation of the culture can happen one relationship at a time, that enough people get, get it um, how how to live truly relationally one by one we're creating a relational culture but really I was very taken <clears throat> with your on-ramp about the roots and the soil and then you mentioned oxygen and yes I it that was so poetical and beautiful so mm. I'm just look, looking forward to our time with you well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, well, I am a poet. So I mean, but not that that's whatever, but it is one of the ways in which I, you know, sort of enjoy um, expressing self you know, care and, and, and involving some creativity and whatnot, as many uh, folks who are writers and artists do. Um, so maybe sometimes it shows up in the language. Anyway, all right. So relationships, relational culture, um, we can start there and maybe walk it back because um, part of this is really about social justice. How do we achieve uh, greater balance? And how can we have inner balance when there's no outer balance? Or how do we use inner balance to create outer balance and all of those things? And isn't that, I'm using the word balance, but it could be really anything, calm, peace, the natural order of things, Buddha mind all overall. Um, how do you think relationships uh, in this context, um, primarily romantic relationships, how are they a portal, if you will, to spiritual life? Mm. Um, you want me to start with that? Do I have thoughts about that? You can. I've got some, but why don't you start? Well, the, um, I think the first thing I would say is that I, um, don't spend a whole lot of time on words uh, like spiritual, religious, theological, and so forth, because over the <clears throat> many decades of trying to figure out what in the, what in the world are we up to as human beings, <clears throat> excuse me, and what's going on, uh, what's happened in my mind is an awareness that there's, there's, a, there's a ground um, in quantum physics, it's called the field, um, and in spirituality, it has a variety of different names called source and so forth. That there's something fundamental, foundational, and unifying at the base of reality. And that when we are um, participating in that and experiencing that as a felt experience, not just as a thought or a belief, but actually 
feeling belonging to the universe that we are um, that 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 in my mind is the is the uh, essence of being that's our nature and so we could call that spiritual spiritual usually is connected to unity and union connecting and unifying and certainly this is but this is this is more than spiritual or religious or theological it's reality itself and then it gets languaged uh, and can be languaged in different kinds of spirituality like Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity. But underneath all of those, what we would call particle natures uh, is the wave, <clears throat> which is the connecting process itself. And so our uh, claim to fame about that is that a door to that uh, ground is relationship with an intimate other. Can be with others with whom one has a special uh, connection, which we would call safety. That somehow safety is non-negotiable for the experience of the ground. Otherwise, if you're scared and anxious, then your attention shifts to yourself. Your brain is interested in uh, survival. And so therefore it is a self-focus and we there's a lot of criticism in spiritual literature about the ego self but the ego self is just scared and when the scare is over and it can be over and i think concretely over daily and hourly and all the time and if lost recovered in an intimate partnership so that one is participating through the relationship in the ground which gives birth to the separate selves and to the relationship. So that would be a kind of a general answer in, in that when we're not connected to the ground, experientially, we're anxious. And then we try to get connected to the ground in ways that make us more anxious because we blame it on people and or, or we compensate for it by taking drugs to see if we can get rid of the anxiety. Or, or we work hard and try to block it out and. Uh, and uh, and what is the word disassociate from it? But you can't do anything to get it back except get it back. And and safety in an intimate partnership is the is one of the most powerful accessible uh, gateways uh, to experiencing the ground itself. Mm-hmm. Safety and intimate partnerships. Yeah, Helen and Francesca. I I love history and sociologists. Uh, talk about different um, evolution, the evolution of marriage in different forms throughout history. The cave men and women um, didn't sign a marriage contract. They lived um, as proto-families, pair bonding is what they were called. Just two people pair bonding. And then in... um, in the village societies, once once things became more structured in community living, uh, parents decided uh, who their children would marry in many, many cases. Um, and uh, whoa, after a while, kids said, look, I wanna choose it myself. I, I don't like my parents. I wanna marry who I wanna marry. So then there was the romantic phase uh, the rom- that you marry because you want to get what you want out of it. It's about me, because I'm going to pick the partner that makes me happy. And we think we're on the cusp of a new kind of marriage 
which is a healing partnership. Because look at the divorce rate with that other kind of marriage. And we think if two people can be held, uh, be invited to, to um, look at marriage with a new lens, that both of them come to marriage wounded, that there's a wound inside, and that they make a commitment to heal each other's wound, that that is the marriage that endures. Wow. And, um, and that, um, uh, I, I know I, I suggested Harville one time, a play on words, that we come with a wound, we have a, a hole in our heart, H-O-L-E. <clears throat> but if the two people's holes touch in a, in a relationship, it becomes holy. Mm-hmm. And if two people can think of each other, that hole as something holy to love and care about and learn sacrificial love, you become whole. You, be, you can become whole, W-H-O-L-E. That, yes. that, that using my partner's words as a mantra like when I mirror Harville back, you can move into the Om state up on a mountaintop, but you can also have that spirit when your partner's talking. And everything you say, you mirror before you give your thought about it. It's a be- it can be a spiritual practice. Yeah, that spiritual practice of daily living in partnership, mirroring that which your partner is offering to you on a minute-to-minute, day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, and being able to stay present for that as part of the healing journey that is what is bringing you uh, together at this time and part of this new paradigm for partnership that you are now exploring and talking about. Yes, and we, when we uh, developed uh, the dialogue process where mirroring is the first step of a three-step process, it, of course, it emerged in clinical practice, and it was about clinical issues and about helping people. Initially, we thought just communicate better. And as we continued to really become rigid about mirroring as non-negotiable in the session with us as the practice of responding to your partner, we began to discover it was way more than communication, that something happened. And we've looked now um, at the neurophysiology of mirroring and the neurochemistry of mirroring and find that when you are fully mirroring, um, you, you actually activate uh, the prefrontal cortex, and that calms you as you activate that, calms you just as it calms you when you're in a meditative state um, with whatever med- meditative object you have. And that regulates also your emotions so that you begin to get an integrated brain while talking with your partner uh, from a mirroring perspective. It creates the safety that's necessary to drop the defenses and become vulnerable enough to receive. And, and Helen came up some years ago with the space between, um, which uh, was kind of a borrow from, which elaborated it from Martin Buber, um, that this space, and you may want to elaborate on that, the space between is where God shows up. Mm. Um, God does not show up in the empty firmaments of, what is that phrase? The empty firmaments of your mind. That was a Dostoevsky Dostoevsky quote. quote. 
But yeah, um, Buber says that two people <clears throat> moving from I it to I thou, the universal energies of love flow between the two people and reside in the space between. And uh, God takes residence in the space between. Mm, back to the holiness that you were speaking of earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And the, the two are one. It's not like you go spiritual. It's all of this is the same thing. That when you're grounded in being, experiencing the ground, which quantum calls the feel, which is the source, when you're there, you can have that as the qualitative energy of the space between you. And therefore, you are now what you are, uh, or what we, our essence, or whatever the word is, of being just right, being what nature meant us to be or God meant us to be. And when we're out of that space, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> we do all kinds of crazy things uh, in reaction to the rupture of the connecting to get back to the connecting. And what most couples don't know is what they, all the things, as I said earlier, all the things they try to do make it worse. Right. That you have to go back into the mirroring interactive work with, it, with your partner um, so that you can uh, move back into safety. And I think the thing about holding, holding each other in safety is what the healing transformation uh, ultimately is. So, so much is coming up for me. I think this is just great. Um, one, of the, one of the points is, and I'm playing devil's advocate, is, um, well, why do I have to do that work? Because I didn't create them with these wounds, you know? And of course, Helen, you already said that, well, everybody comes into the relationship with some wounds. Um, so that's a big admittance right there because some folks don't believe that. They think that they're fine, right? And maybe some are, you know, along a different kind of spectrum. So then, so, so the point would be, what's the benefit in that, right? Me doing this work of mirroring. Yes. Right? If, I, if it's not, if it's not a quote unquote, my problem. So how do we own it, have that investment in it, right? Um, how do we make that shift? And then also the idea of how do we maintain differentiation? Because we don't want to do the ooze. We don't want to do the merge. We don't want to do, but residing in that space of source energy or however um, it is, being a part of that process of wave, being a part of that flow together through these processes, mirroring and witnessing, right? And all that neural integration and prefrontal cortex online that helps us actually be rational beings and be able to speak to one another a little bit better as opposed to just fight tit for tat. Um, how does that work to the, to the folks that might say, well, I don't know if I really want to do this. What's in it for me? Um, well, I, I think the, the, the start at the point you said is that um, you, we don't much have a choice about whether or not we're wounded that seems to be the universal human condition that we're not evolved yet enough as a species to know how to rear children and hold them in the relationship to the ground or the field through infancy, childhood, and to their adulthood. Nobody knows how to do that. And so therefore, denial is the only way, the only position you can take if you feel like you don't want to do that. Now, you don't have to do it, and you never have to experience the ground. But what we tend to say to a, a person or a couple who is objecting is, if you have um, objected to the same thing 
three times with emotion. It comes from your past and probably is rooted in an unresolved issue with your caretakers. Because if you're not wounded, the brain doesn't have to repeat things. And the brain only repeats uh, wounding behaviors or an experiencing because it's trying to get out of it. And it was one of the things that we thought that Freud talked about the repetition compulsion that the brain just repeats and sort of rubs itself in its pain. But when a deeper reading of Freud and later on uh, his students and Helen and I definitely are on the side of the repetition processes in the service of transition, not of repetition. Mm. So it's trying to move out of it and have a perhaps corrective experience. But you need a way to do it. It's sort of like a car and you're stuck in a, in a mud hole. You can get in there and punch the you know, gasoline, punch the pedals, spin the wheels, and stay there going round and round. You need to put something under the tires. And what we've discovered is that the thing to put under the tire is the dialogue process for couples. And that, it's just amazing. And sometimes 20 minutes, a couple has moved from polarization to at least relaxation and to a feeling of safety and begin to connect. And so there has to be this engagement, but it has to be done in such a way that it holds each in safety. Mm. You can't just randomly do it, can't throw mud at the wall and hope it'll stick. There are technologies that work and then there are efforts that don't produce anything that have a great deal of status, but people don't change with them. And it's like in meditation, sometimes how people say, well, we can meditate ourselves around this. And my uh, response has been, tell me how meditating helps you know how to talk to your partner. Meditating can ground you and so and calm you and you can know how to operate. But when you turn and look at your partner, it's like um, we talked, talked earlier um, uh, about... Um, um, what to, I'm blogging his name now. Yeah, no, uh, the um, oh, Cornfield. Cornfield. Oh, uh, Jack, yeah. Jack Cornfield. You know, <clears throat> when you look at your partner, that's a shattering experience. You got to say something, and most of us say things that polarize with them, even though <clears throat> we've just meditated. <clears throat> so there's a technology and a skill to using language with another person. That in itself is a meditative process which holds Helen uh, so that she's not scared when I talk to her. And right. it shows me, so that I'm not scared when she talks to me. Then we can do this cosmic thing of relaxing the defenses, and then the universe is what we participate in. But you have to practice, practice, practice to make this happen as a uh, daily, and, and sometimes an at-will experience. Yes, Helen. Um, yeah, and I'm picking up something else in your question about differentiation. Um, Harville and I were with Maddie and Frank about three weeks ago, and we don't know them very well. Neither of them had had a good marriage until they were about 50 or so, and being with them, they were just precious. They were so much in love, and how old are they? I actually don't know. Okay, it's, it's hard for me to tell, but um, maybe they've been married um, 
10 years or, or 15. I mean, maybe, maybe they were, um, they had bad relationships until they were 45. So the last 15, they're together and just madly in love. I said, how did, how, what, and after the end of the evening, we said, how did you all, what do you all do to stay so happy? And because they're so connected, they're so joyful. He said, well, the uh, even days of the calendar, she makes the decisions. And the odd days of the calendar, I make the decisions. <laughs> and I just thought that was so brilliant. And they, um, they knew our work, but like that's, that was the bottom line. Like, and I have actually talked with Harville. And there was a time in our marriage when we were recovering from being called mm -hmm. the blended family from hell and our kids threatening to go on Oprah and tell Oprah what we were really like and all that. So, so we, we, we added some things and we turned our marriage around, but one of the things was to get a calendar and um, I called them off duty and on duty days that I would be on duty by mm -hmm. the time we go to bed at night that I make sure we're connected joyfully. <clears throat> and the next night, uh, maybe we've had a great day and his job is to make sure that we go to sleep connected, yeah. but maybe we've had a big fight <clears throat> and yeah. it's his job to fix it before going to bed. And that is really, we call them on and off duty days. And I, I don't think that's in, that's really not a major part of a Mongo theory, but that really can help with differentiation as well as the connecting. Yeah. And you know, Helen's Beautiful. been indispensable in, in uh, creating Imago and also contributing specific ideas as well as exercises. And that's one of them is I remember I was very resistant to that idea. Well, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I overfunction in the marriage. So uh, like I was, I was supposed yes. to make have everything fine at the end of the day. <laughs> Right, right. But God forbid, then you're the nag, right? You're you're always trying to fix it. Yeah, sulking. And, you know. Never to be on duty every, every day. day. Every yeah. day. Not, not have the one day off. And also, um, Helen, um, talking about marriage as a window, uh, Helen also uh, came up with dialogue, actually. And it was um, a necessity. We were in our first year, not of marriage, but of dating. And uh, we were, I think we started off with an argument in our first date. We often still wonder, how did we ever wind up marrying <laughs> after five years of arguing? Oh, we're the adversary, huh? <laughs> yeah, really that's was. a way to think about and, it. <laughs> and, we, and we were in the midst of a huge uh, fight. And being a therapist and finding myself in the middle of that sort of outrage was really embarrassing. But somehow I couldn't, we hadn't discovered dialogue then. And Helen uh, yells out, in fact, stop, one of us talk, and the other one listen. So this alteration thing had came up in her mind many years earlier. And it regulated us in that moment and became so interesting to my theoretical mind and clinical mind that I took it to the clinic with couples. Yeah because we've been working on how to help them solve their problems. And it began to discover it wasn't their problems that was their problem. It was the way they talked about their problems that was the problem. Right. So that the dialogue process became the container for holding uh, polarizing content without polarizing around it. Right. So we started off with mirroring and eventually got to 
well, validation, you, you may, it makes sense. I can see the sense you're making and to empathy. I can imagine when you have that experience, you must feel angry or sad. And by the time you go through that three-level process of responding to your partner, you are in an integrated state and they are in an integrated state. And then when you shift, you just keep deepening that. And it was so amazing and almost embarrassing to discover that the only quality you had to absolutely be consistent about was safety. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't make it safe, it sucked. Right. And nothing could happen because there's only one other state than safety, and that's danger. And right. in danger, you're going to defend yourself. Are and there, we, yeah, are there floors for safety? Like, are there pillars of safety that you can put up to keep you sort of, you know, to keep the building as safe as possible, the building of marriage, you know, um, <laughs> that you erect as sort of pillars that kind of yeah. keep going? Yeah. I don't know if we can answer that. Um, so I'll let you take a stab at that. But Basically, it's not what we say to each other, it's how we say it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's learning to raise issues with your partner in a way that they don't react negatively, which means you ask, is now a good time for us to have a conversation about blank? Um, and if you're raising something and you think your partner is uneasy about the topic, you don't just start talking about it. You give them the courtesy of saying, yeah, I, I, I can manage that now. Or mm -hmm. actually something else is on my mind. What about later this afternoon at 4, 4.30 or 5, I'll make time to talk to you about that subject. But that's respect. Yeah. Beautiful, real respect. And I, what I hear in that is, is that there's a real attunement, but there's also a willingness to be able to risk, um, you know, sort of checking in, right? So I could check in, see if this is okay right now. And if it isn't, the whole abandonment issue is something, if it were to get triggered or something. Also, it's respecting someone's boundaries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, you're, your partner, whoever they are, they're busy. And you're busy too. Yeah. And and to imagine that they're ready to drop anything at any point to talk about. So we always make an appointment with each other. When, like throughout our day, we go, is this a good time I can go over the grocery list with you? Right. I guess what I was trying to say is that some folks might bite their tongue. Right. And so intrusion would be the boundary uh, thing about where you're just coming in with your thing and you want to talk about it right now and you're not going to give in right. until you can. But the other part is the one who doesn't say anything and doesn't want to go forward. And the right. reason why I brought that part up is because I wanted to get to this next question here is how does childhood affect our relationships? Because I think a lot of folks um, that would show up in both ways, the outward way, like you just said, the invasion of the boundaries, but also the part of biting the tongue and sort of sitting on it and then having it perhaps explode later or be a silent killer later. Yeah, right. And that has its roots in childhood um, and in the um, sympathetic and parasympathetic sides of the autonomic nervous system uh, is the neurophysiology of that. Um, <clears throat> and so it's a natural response to, uh, for people who are sympathetically uh, habituated uh, to be expressive and therefore they just cross boundaries and say, I got to talk or, or just start talking. And, uh, and we call that person a, 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 a hailstorm. <laughs> uh, and they're so classic that we can give them that sort of name. And, and the, they're, they're married to a turtle. 
um, who seldom ever comes up to the boundary. And you have to sort of reach in the box to see if he's in there. And he'll bite you sometimes if you put your hand in the box. So what we found is what Helen was saying is about this appointment process. Couples have to make agreements. Mm. Okay. The agreement is we will honor boundaries. Now, if you think about that, that's the most wise thing in the world. Boundary violations are the source of wars. International, intertribal. You just cross a boundary and you get you get pushed back. And you cross my boundary and start talking to me without asking if I'm willing to shut my movie down. Uh, we're all watching our own movie all the time. And ask me, would you shut your movie down and let me run my movie on your screen for a few minutes so you can see what's going on for me. Then I may do that and say, well, I'm curious about that. But if you just run, start up your projector on my screen overlaying my movie, I'm not going to like that. Um, so that the regulation of safety requires a commitment to boundaries. And that would be one of the safety things. And you talked about the pillar. I hadn't thought about it as a pillar before, but it actually is foundational. The, we, we have a zero negativity process that we ask couples to actually sign a pledge for. So they take it seriously. This is a pledge that you will always, always ask for what you want rather than criticize your partner for what you're getting. We call it the put down. So if you have an objection, like the way I'm doing the dishes, you don't just come in and say, well, what are you doing your dishes like that for? Well, that's a put down. I'm doing dishes the way I do dishes. That's my reality. Helen says, um, well, could I uh, have a conversation about dishes? And I would like the dishes arranged in this particular way in the dishwasher. A little thing like that can become World War III, or it can become, I got some information about how Helen likes dishes. And that's what you want. It's just more information about, as you use the word, differentiation. Helen is not me. I got to get over that. So she does not arrange the dishes the way I do. Nor does she think the way I think. Helen is a, she's a hailstorm. She has lots of emotion. She's full of words. And I'm a turtle. Wait, and I, I like a hailstorm is, a, is a, <laughs> a adorable term in a mug. I'm really it's adorable. A, it's an adorable term. I'm adorable. <laughs> you are adorable. I attest to that. For any of our listeners who aren't watching the video. <laughs> Turtles are adorable, too. So the turtle and the he didn't call me a name just then. No, no, no. And I will say, though, that, yeah, the one thing is, is that some folks, I feel like, just to be able to say what they want would be terrifying because of their childhood yes. stuff. Yeah. Oh, and that would feel like life threat and not safe, to use your point. point about safety. Right. Great point. That's right. And they have to grow into that. But once you regulate it by holding the space, and now the turtle can say what I think and want, and I don't get yelled at, then it's like, oh, I didn't die. Uh, that childhood memory didn't get reactivated there. So now I can ask again. But you have to behave your way into the new way of thinking and feeling. And that is by risking. But couples just usually can't do it by themselves. Um, uh, at least uh, some apparently can because we've had uh, thousands of couples say we read Getting and our marriage has been great 
we never went to therapy. But most people have too much reactivity, too much wounding to, but if you have some, if you can hold them for a while so they can just experience it, maybe even for 20 minutes, then their brain says, there's another way to be. I mean, I can actually ask without getting hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, hailstorm says, oh, I don't have to yell in order to get attention. I can actually ask, Is, are you available? And the turtles say, well, yeah, I can be available. So that those behavioral micro changes become then the building blocks for a whole new way of being with each other. And you use the word differentiation. You really have to differentiate to know that Helen is not me. She, be, she feels that, thinks that. And that's her, and that's fine, and that's wonderful, and I adore it. And the same way the other side. Then once you get over all that, then you become what we would call passionate friends and live in a conscious partnership. And then life is worth living. Mm. At that point, it sucks. Yeah, I really think, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's not fun to be around um, threat all the time or to feel as though you're in, oh, in right. threat or you know, in, in, in danger, uh, in a dangerous environment. Exactly. Um, and, and, and that kind of gets the next point is, is can a relationship you know, work if only one person's willing to work on it? Or can somebody or does someone need to do stuff on their own before they're ready? And I, this is a little bit of a question for singles out there who aren't yet in partnership, but who want to be. No. Who have wounds that they would like to sort of heal as best as they can. No, you Ellen? want to go on with that? If, um, you're, if you're single. Um. Why don't you start? I've, okay. I've got a comment. You've got a thought about that. Well, the, um, that question comes up a lot. And especially now that singlehood has moved from being a bad thing to being okay to be single, which is a good thing. Uh, back when, in fact, when we wrote Getting in uh, 1988, being single was a deficient mode of being. So it's changed in the past mm. 30 years that singleness isn't a chosen lifestyle and and nobody has any right to criticize that but if they do want to are in a relationship not married or or married and uh, they don't have a cooperative partner the question has come up what do i do how do i get my partner to dialogue and what we and we experimenting with this for 20 years so it's a kind of an educated response is that if you want your partner to respond to you differently, you must respond to them differently. And the difference has to be that it's okay for them to be who they are and for you to mirror them back and say when they're talking, but not expect them then to say, now you, what I just did for you, would you do that for me? No. Right. That's not what you do. You mirror them back and you stay in your integrated prefrontal cortex and mirror back and say, and get curious, is there more about that? Something happens then in the brain of your partner and it's called a uh, neurochemical shift because they're scared with cortisol and you mirror them back, their brain automatically starts producing endorphins. They now feel better around you. And now they can become curious and say, what are you doing? This is the best conversation I've ever had. I've never felt you being You're like so hypnotized by your presence. <laughs> yes. 
And so uh, we have seen uh, just dozens of people uh, decide to become sort of like Gandhi, be the change you want to see, to, to engage in one side of the process, and then the partner becomes curious about it. Mm. Helen? Um, I think uh, I'll make a comment about um, maybe the partner isn't doing much, and what do you do? That, mm. or, or on the way to making a commitment, you just don't know if both are really engaged. And I think a really powerful thing is um, if, if it's your birthday or end of the year holiday or a special day, you ask, hey, why don't we go to a workshop? I really want to learn what I need to yeah, do. Yeah, that's a, to be, that's a great way to invite um, them. For you to feel safe in our relationship. Or I want to I want to be the kind of partner that you really enjoy. And I'd love to get some coaching. And uh, maybe this year we could go to two workshops. And um, I mean, may, maybe you wouldn't have to, like, instead of getting me a real birthday gift, do, I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe they, they talk about it in that way, just to anyway, want to get some relationship skills. I think one of our, our things when we have relationship uh, workshops, I congratulate the people for coming because for the first time, there's a relational science that is so much more effective than ever before. Like at our workshops, people learn things, so like make, try to make them feel really great in the room that most of the world doesn't know. They're getting cutting edge advice. And there are many, between us, there are many other ways uh, other than our workshops to get wonderful, oh, yeah. wonderful advice. But, but anyway, to say that to your beloved or someone that you, maybe you just want to, both of you want to practice until you find the right one. But I think going to a workshop and letting someone else teach you as a couple how to connect instead of you acting like you're the expert mm. and, and the person you're with just doesn't know anything and you know it all. That's sort of deadly. Yeah, nobody knows. <laughs> what do they say? You're going to be right or you're going to be happy? Are you going to be a know-it-all or, 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 or are you going to be right or going to be married, right? <laughs> and you don't um, say to them, let's go to a workshop so you can learn something. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's such wisdom there because it's a sort of um, see one, do one, teach one. You can't get to the doing unless you do the seeing. And if the childhood wasn't one where there was the experiencing of it, and the, and the seeing of it maybe so much, or you just don't know how, this workshop piece is really a skill-building psychoeducational yes. piece where then you can say, ah, that's how it works. I can try to do that or emulate that a little bit. I can see, the, I can see yes. how it's happening. Yeah, right. And the, at the, that's right. At the workshop, they actually see its embodiment in the demos that we do. Then they have 40 or 50 couples around them practicing it, and they're in this group. And they began to see, oh, so that's what it looks like. And look at that couple over there who were not glaring at each other an hour ago, now embracing each other. Some of the learning uh, really accelerates in a, in a group process. So we really recommend people 
take advantage of that. Yeah, and as we close, because I know it's time, um, this kind of makes us full circle back to where we started in terms of uh, establishing and really cultivating this relational culture, because you were just talking about the group process. And in that way, we're in this relational field in partnership, and then in our family circles and our friend circles, but in that greater sort of, you know, small tribe, larger tribe with our communities, networks, schools, places of work, that kind of thing, that when we're around people who don't so much have this capacity, it does have an impact on us. And yes. when we're around people that do have this capacity, it also has this deep physiological impact on us also. So how is it that we can still continue to not only build and cultivate our capacity, but continue to bring that into arenas that may not be as strong as a workshop with YouTube. Um, Harville had an idea uh, several years ago to try to get this out of the clinic and into the public. And talking with some of the other relationship scientists, they agreed. And we're actually doing an experiment. We've moved to one city. We were in New York and we moved to Dallas. And we're getting out something called Safe Conversations. We're teaching couples to shift from conflict to connection. But this process of talking is, yes, it's for the couple and the family, but it's for the first responders, it's for schools, it's for any ecosystem, corporations, the Poverty Task Force here in Dallas. So I don't know if that's the kind of answer you were expecting, yeah. but we, we are very passionate about our work. In so Dallas. the culture has no relational knowledge as its base. It has knowledge about how to be a better self but it has no just basic knowledge from school, from advertising, from, you know, you look at your TV uh, at, my, at my computer every day, there are 20 programs on how you can be a better self, grow your self-esteem. There's nothing ever, uh, uh, well, let, sometimes it's beginning to show up that says how to be in a relationship or what a relationship is, what relating is. So Helen and I have taken on the job with this relational culture thing of bringing education as the missing element in the knowledge base mm -hmm. of the Western world. Yes. If we can just get the information out, people are then empowered to have something everybody wants, which is a relationship in which they feel safe, whether it's a married relationship or with their parents or with their boss or with their you know, colleagues. So that's what we're trying to do is now to put it into all the ecosystems that we find a door to. A psychiatrist at University of Penn said to us, it's teachable for the first time. You can teach relationship. And I, I translated that there should be four R's in school, reading, writing, arithmetic, and relationship. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. In kindergarten, they can learn this. Yeah. And it's one of the most important and gratifying <clears throat> things in our lives is relationship health. And so, so learn, learn the, the process. <laughs> yeah, learn the process and, and, and learnable do and doable. It is learn, it's skill building. And, and, and there really is, there are great resources for skill building. And we do so much of that, like you said, um, as an individual for our own selves and our own needs and our own, you know, sort of corporate ladder business, but to really do the relational skill building. Um, there are toolkits out there, toolkits out there that you, um, that you offer now um, in vivo and online and in books like this one, Getting the Love You Want, which just had the 10th um, revision. 
um, that it just came out. And I just want to express my sincere gratitude for uh, our time together today, uh, your embodiment of um, rupture and repair, and um, your continual uh, living practice of this applied mindfulness, taking in, witnessing, validating, empathizing with uh, your partner day in and day out, moment to moment, and you know, just really, really beautiful attunement. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. We appreciate your kindness in your inquiry. And it's, my, you well. it's been lovely. Thank you. thank you. My pleasure. Take good care.